Welcome to the show. In her new movie, How It Feels to Be Free, filmmaker Yorba Richin tells the story of African-American women artists who didn't just change the culture, they changed the country. They are women who were canceled before that was even a thing that people cared about, and they are women who thrived, who survived, and who also showed the rest of us how it's done. They are trailblazers. They are influencers. Before we started calling people influencers, they are a part of our history, a part of the fabric of this country. Frankly, they are a part of what makes us so great as Americans. Please join me for my conversation with director Yoruba Richin. Welcome to the show, Yoruba Richin. Your movie is so rich. And by that, I mean, it tells the stories of these African-American entertainers, uh, Lena Horne, Cicely Tyson, uh, Nina Simone, Diane Carroll, Abby Lincoln, and then there's some others, but you tell like, you know, there's some Hattie McDaniel and her story in there. It's executive produced by Alicia Keys. Tell me why you made this movie. Well, I, um, made this film because when I read the book in 2014, the book is called African-American uh, Female Entertainers in the Civil Rights Movement. And I, I read the book and I immediately thought it could make a great film. And the reason why I got excited about it was because uh, the story of the, the entertainment industry uh, through the lens of Black women's experiences, A, B, that it wasn't a biopic of these women who all have like very fascinating lives, but really looked at how they reshaped representation in their particular time period and field and see their political work and how their political work was both on screen and off screen. I loved all those, that mix of politics and entertainment and of their trailblazing you know, careers and how they set the stage for the renaissance uh, that we see of Black women uh, in story storytelling today. And it spans such a broad history. So if you think about the world that Lena Horne grew up in, and the world that Diane Carroll grew up in, and then Pam Greer. And again, you know, you've got commentary and observations by current artists, uh, Lena Waithe. I thought that was funny when she said that somebody thought that she was named after <laughs> Lena Dunham. We all grew up thinking that <laughs> Lena Horne was like the queen of the That's world. Right. But when you look at a story like hers, you know, there was something she said, I thought it was so powerful. She insisted on not being a maid but they really wouldn't let her do anything else either. She was kind of this butterfly exactly. on the wall. Yeah. Uh, what was it like for you gathering some of these stories? What I love, one of the things I love about documentary, documentary filmmaking is that A, you think you, you know, know something and then you dive into it and you find out all this other stuff, which blows your mind. So exactly, like I'd always known that Lena was, you know, the first black woman to sign a contract with a studio. And it was a groundbreaking uh, contract because she refused to play a maid or servant or, you know, somebody in the jungle, as her daughter says, a jungle citizen. But I didn't realize what that meant is that she was not able to do anything else. They didn't give her any other roles because they were um, too 
you know, scared of the Southern market. The Southern market would cut out her roles. They were also too scared of, you know, presenting this beautiful, sexy, you know, black woman uh, to these audience. What, what, what would that do? What would, it, what would it mean? But the other part about it is that she also got backlash from the black actors out there who were t- playing those roles and had for years. So if she refuses to play those roles, you know, then what does that mean? Are there going to be any more roles for, for black actors? You know, not everybody's going to be a Lena Horne. And, and so that was fascinating to, to understand. And then really what I began to see as I told the stories of these women is that there's always a little bit of progress, right? And this is kind of emblematic of what we see in this country, you know, uh, uh, what our history in this country anyway. There's a little bit of progress and then there's some backlash or then there's a, you know, two steps back. So all these women are breakthrough artists and then they also receive backlash from not just white people, but people, but black people, African-Americans, people in their own community. I want to unpack uh, the first part of what you said, because I think it's so important when you were talking about how Lena Horne would, uh, you know, there's a part in your movie where she talks about how she shot these incredible musical scenes and the way they shot the film and the way they shot her pieces as they did was so she could be excised and cut out because Southerners didn't want to see a black woman who was not a maid, not there to, as one of your participants described it, uh, kind of enforce or prop up white womanhood. She was uh, a woman in her own right. And so when you juxtapose what was happening to African-American artists who Southern uh, theaters and Southern audiences said, you know, we're not having that. They were canceled. What do you think about when you hear the current conversation about cancel culture today, which, which, you know, is usually focused on people further to the right being upset about the fact that folks are complaining. Tell me what your response is to that. (laughs) Exactly. I didn't realize you were going there until you said canceled. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, out, it's an outrage that that's been used uh, where our experiences, our existences, you know, our representation has been canceled throughout the, the history of this country. Like, you, you want to talk about cancel culture? Like, we can tell you about cancel culture. So, you know, it's that appropriation that always happens and then it's twisted and then it's made to, you know, to actually... Um, delegitimize our experiences as Black people, as women. So yeah, that's what I think about that. But what, what's also fascinating about the way you tell these stories and the context uh, in which you put the stories of these entertainers who really did much more than that. I mean, they were pushing the envelope culturally. They were pushing the envelope politically. Uh, you've got someone like Nina Simone who did not fit the norm. For those in the know who know what I'm talking about, Nina Simone, like me, uh, we were four, you know, four C girls, like, you know, kinky haired, brown skin. And she said, you know what? I'm beautiful. And I'm going to celebrate that beauty in a time when that was not popular. I mean, even in black culture, did anything surprise you as you were telling these stories and learning more about these women? I too am a 4C girl. (laughs) And so, you know, Nina, and I've been obsessed with Nina Simone since I discovered her. And her embrace of her blackness and and her beauty and putting that out there and how it reshaped how we saw ourselves as black women, the effect that it had on us. I think with Nina, that 
is what surprised me is that Abby Lincoln actually was uh, a little bit before Nina and was at that point had put out some of the most political songs and put herself out there politically and also went through a transformation where she threw off the sort of Hollywood because she had been in a, in a movie, she'd worn Marilyn Monroe's dress. They were trying to make her into the next Lena Horne and she rejected that. And she went natural, you know, with her hair and with her looks and embraced her black beauty. And so that was surprising that she had actually come a little bit before Nina Simone. And, and her story, I think, is, has, not been, has not been told and is really unknown. So that was one of the... I, I, I agree with you. I learned so much more about each of these women, her in particular. I mean, there was a lot about the ground she broke, uh, the way she took a lot of backlash for being vocal in her art and her music in a way that a lot of uh, male artists, uh, John Coltrane, her husband, Max Roach, uh, others perhaps uh, did, did not, Miles Davis. Okay. But let's go back to something else you said, because you talked about some of the backlash that uh, some of these women faced in the black community. Diane Carroll, for instance, when she played the character of Julia, upper middle class, black woman, it was not a story about black trauma. And black trauma certainly is real. But one of the things that she said, uh, she talks about in the documentary, is that she believed that they had the right to tell another type of story too. Tell me a little bit about why you think it's so important that people see the breadth of African-American experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, that was so poignant, you know, uh, that she said, you know, she acknowledged the criticism. She said, you know, perhaps they're, they're, they were, you know, right in some ways, but we can tell a multitude of stories about ourselves because we are a multitude uh, we are not a monolith. We have all different kinds of experiences, you know, and as actors, as entertainers, as writers, as directors, we should be allowed the full breadth of our experience. And also we should be allowed to have, you know, what they call aspirational shows. We should be allowed to have that too. And, and Julia was one of the first, the first places where that happened, the, the first shows where that happened. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I actually was a theater person. I was an actor. I did a lot of acting. My mom was a playwright. So I grew up in the theater. So when I was little, you know, small, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an actress. So maybe that's also why I did this film. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting also, especially since you had a, a, you come from a family in the arts. What was your favorite movie growing up? Because again, something that's so interesting about your film, you tell these stories, you tell a great and very rich story about American history and where the country was and how it's gone through these different cycles. And also about without kind of using these words, uh, you explain why representation matters, you know, even though like it's not a big hashtag, it's implicit. I think it's what the movie is about. So that leads me to ask you when you were a little girl, like going to the movies, what did you see and what did you love? Like what well, excited to, you? Yes, I have to say I was a big musical person. <laughs> So I remember, you know, going to see Hair. My mom took me to Hair and Fame. And, um, you know, I loved watching uh, West Side Story was like my favorite. And I saw it, you know, I'd watch it in the, in the, um, on television when it came on the movie. But then the play came on with Debbie Allen 
uh, in when I was in third grade and we got seats up by like the third row seats because they used to have standing room seats on Broadway. And my mom used to get the $10 tickets and then we would always get a seat. And so I saw many musicals. So those, those pieces really influence what entertainment can do, what it can do to you, you know, how it can make you feel and take you into worlds that you didn't you know, know existed or worlds that you didn't have access to. What'd you think of Gone with the Wind? Oh gosh, I don't even know if I've ever watched that full. Me neither. Like, I haven't. I have. I, I, I've tried like three or four times, yeah. but no I mean, joke. Why? Why should I watch that? You know? so, let's, so, so this is something you talk about in the film. Uh, Lena Horne says, I'm not going to play a maid. There are generations. I mean, there are African-American actors who only had access to those roles. Hattie McDaniel right. won an Oscar uh, playing a movie. And I, I really, I mean, no disrespect to her. I honor uh, Hattie McDaniel. I can't get through that movie. Yeah. Um, by the same token, you explore how, I guess, you know, I think someone, maybe it was Halle Berry or somebody in the movie says, you know, Hattie McDaniel and some others are really in their feelings when the thing that they've been doing for so long is all of a sudden not good enough. That's anymore. Right. Uh, yep. It's not the right thing to be right. uh, doing. As a filmmaker, how do you approach like kind of telling that whole nuanced story? Because I, yeah. I, it's important. You know, we've got to respect the Hattie McDaniels, but also have an authentic response to it. Absolutely. I, I, you know, and it's similar with black exploitation too, right? Which we talk about in the film that, you know, similarly, a lot of like Cicely Tyson, the great Cicely Tyson, who just who just passed, had a very big critique about uh, black exploitation, and we look at that tension in the film. But this is something that you know, because we have so little representation, even today, where we have more than we've seen in the past, because we have so little representation, it's always a contested battle. And the the the, the fact is, until that changes, until we have more representation and we have a wider array of stories that's going to continue because one story or one uh, type of character people think will represent all of us. And I think that's changing a bit, you know, and Lena Waithe says it in the film. She's like, we need to be able to have villains and heroes and tell a multitude of, a multitude of stories. And of course, a big part of that is having more of us behind the camera where we can write and direct those stories. Because telling the way that you tell these stories and the way that you present kind of the full panoply of experiences, I think is something that is really unique. I mean, for instance, no one said that white women had to choose between uh, a Marilyn Monroe type and a Grace Kelly type. And, you know, there were all of these sort of different of nuances of kind or of Bette uh, you know, iconic yeah, Bette Midler. Um, so, you know, certainly we've got room for a Pam Greer and a Cicely Tyson and a Diane Carroll. And then, you know, if you think about it today, a Lena Waith and a Carrie Washington and That's a... But let's, I, I want to go back to you, because when you talk about the fact of representation, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about who's in front of the camera, but stories get told, editing happens, you know, the folks who are made prominent, those are decisions that are generally made by people behind the camera. There are not 
a whole lot. There are more, certainly more than there were 10, 15, 20 years ago, but there aren't a whole lot of African-American women who are telling these stories behind the camera. So tell us a little bit about your path. Um, what made you realize that you could do this? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I'd always loved documentaries. As I said, I grew up in the theater. I started out, you know, I went to, to performing arts school. I did a lot of theater in college. I started directing some. And of course, it was when I, when I started directing some is when I realized, you know, oh, wow, the really the power to tell these stories is, you know, is behind, is being uh, not necessarily in front, but behind. And so that, that whetted my appetite for that. But in terms of documentary, I'd always been interested in documentary, uh, loved it, but it never seemed like a career path. It wasn't until the 1990s when the cameras uh, got smaller and more user-friendly um, that I started making videos. And it really became, you know, the process really touched the different parts of me that I love, the doing research, talking to people, figuring out how to tell a story creatively. And that is when, uh, and that was in my, in my mid-20s, and that is when I decided I was gonna to try to pursue this. Luckily, I had uh, a mentor in a great documentary filmmaker who's no longer with us, St. Clair Bourne, who was the first person to hire me. And I learned from the ground up. And I you know, freelanced and, and worked on uh, different programs. And then I went over to the news side um, and I was there for four years at ABC News and at Democracy Now! And I learned, you know, about, uh, you know, it's a different pace, it's a much quicker pace. I was able to write and produce, uh, work with camera people and, and editors, but I always wanted to go back into, you know, knew I wanted to do what at that point we called long form um, television. And so I uh, was able to get a, a, a journalism fellowship, which put me on the path for, to making my first film, which took five years. And my first film is about uh, South Africa and land reform. And it aired on POV and PBS. And then I you know, made my, my next film uh, after that. You know, and this is the first film, you don't know what you're doing. It's, you know, it's trial by fire, but that's, that's how I started. What was the hardest part of all of this? People are gonna watch you and say like, you know what, I wanna make a movie. I've got these stories to tell. I wanna tell, tell people a little bit about how hard it is and how you got past the hard parts. Yeah, I feel like there are two hard parts, two big hard parts. One is financial, right? So how are you gonna fund this film? A lot of times the reason why documentaries can take so long is because you're looking for funding. And you have to, so you're looking to fund a film and you have to support yourself. So there's two parts to the funding. It's funding your film and funding yourself. And that can be challenging. You know, at one point when the economy crashed uh, previously in 2008, I was in the middle of making the film, trying to finish it. And I had to, you know, the job, I'd been freelancing, jobs dried up and I started temping and, and was temping. And this is after I'd, you know, had a lot of success. I'd gotten a Fulbright. I had, you know, gotten this other journalism fellowship, you know, I thought I was on my way and I wasn't, you know, I was in my mid thirties and I had to, um, you know, figure out how I was going to pay the bills. So that can be challenging. This is even the bigger challenge because it's psychological. It's the challenge of, uh, you know, when I started, there were very few people who looked like me, who I could look to, 
uh, and say, oh, they've made a career in documentary film, right? Um, it was just much fewer. I mean, for everybody, I mean, the industry has really grown, but also too, uh, with that growth and with a knowledge that these, that the industry needs to diversify, that it's, it's been much more welcoming to people of color. We still have a long way to go. But when I started in the nineties, there were very, very few. And when you don't have that model, when you can't see yourself, you have the imposter syndrome. Am I really good enough? Is that one film a fluke? Is anybody gonna like my next film? Am I even a filmmaker? I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to journalism school. You know, all these things, all the things in your head. And that can be very challenging and you have to overcome that because making films are, is a risk. It's an artistic risk and it's a financial risk. What about the risks in your choice of subject matter? Do you ever uh, worry as some of the women who you uh, portrayed talked about, do you ever worry about being pigeonholed? Uh, there was that great scene where Abby Lincoln is talking about the interview she had with the white film critic who basically says, you know, you're relying too much on your nigritude or yeah. however he put it. And she's like, I'm telling the stories of my life. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about uh, no, you know, I? No, I, I don't want to be pigeonholed because I do like to do, you know, I have interest in a range of different stuff. So I don't want to be pigeonholed, but I don't think about that because part of my, what I want to do and the, the risk that I have taken to be in this industry is because I have, you know, story ideas and, and voices and stories that I want to tell. And I, you know, think I have a track record at this point that people are interested in those stories. And I know they're interested in those stories. You know, they, the, the gatekeepers want to sometimes tell you that they're not or, you know, not fund you. But I know that they're interested in those stories, that there's, a, there's an audience for it. How do you think the uh, gatekeeping has changed over the, let's say, the past 10 years? Yeah. And when um, I say gatekeeping, you know, for... Uh, my audience, I'm really, I'm talking about, you know, the process of getting something greenlit, the process of having somebody believe in you, even if you don't necessarily look like them or remind them of them when they were coming up in the biz. How do you think all of that's changed in the last decade or so? Well, the, one of the big changes is technology, right? So we, when I was starting out, you know, there was no streaming cable was, you know, barely showing uh, documentaries. It was really PBS. And so the technology, which we know has, has a lot of problems and, and, and issues, but has also really opened up a lot of different places where people can have potential to, uh, you know, broadcast their stories or put up their films themselves uh, on the, on the internet. So that's really broadened out, you know, and the gatekeepers, in some ways, that means that there's less gatekeeping because people can just, you know, make a film and put it up there um, or put it on their YouTube channel or, you know, what have you. But with the sort of more traditional funders and gatekeepers, there is an acknowledgement that, you know, that the industry needs to diversify. I mean, we're better than that in terms of diversity. And I think the numbers show we're further along than the, um, you know, fiction Hollywood industry, but there's still a long way that we need to go. But I think there's an acknowledgement and I think that there have been people that have been brought on 
into some of these key places. I want to go back to your film for a moment, uh, how it feels to be free. Another one of the things about it that is, I think is so powerful is you explore how, and one of your participants says it better than I will now, but essentially how so many of these political, racial, culture wars were fought through Black women, um, kind of using us as uh, the proxies for this side or, or that. There's a story, going back to Lena Horne, that I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with. I guess it was, it was, uh, it was certainly big news at the time. She's in a restaurant Someone is serving her. There's a white patron who says, you know, I'm, I, help me. And they're like, excuse me. You know, the server says, I'm helping Ms. Horn. And the white patron says, uh, you know, I don't care about that N-word. And Lena Horn hears this and like throws an ashtray or like throws yes. something at this guy and draws blood. And it's so funny when you think, especially for African-American women in the public eye, how you have to like walk that line between standing up for yourself, but then, you know, don't do it too much because you might be perceived as angry. You know, it's just impossible for me, like, you know, less than a month after the Capitol riots where the capital of the United States was taken over, not to juxtapose the way, you know, the anger of some groups is considered. What do you think about that? And, you know, what do you think about kind of breaking down these caricatures of black womanhood that have been propped up for so long? You know, we had a section in the film uh, where we talked about that in one of the cuts, um, the angry, you know, how Nina Simone was perceived as angry, Lena uh, angry and what that trope was, because that's certainly a trope that we know exists. And, uh, and unfortunately, it was one of the one things that we had to leave on the cutting room floor. Um, but, you know, that is the way, as you just said, certain people are allowed to be angry and others are not. Uh, and Black women have been um, stereotyped and caricatured around their anger when they show anger, even though that anger comes from a very real place, as we you know see in this Lena Horn incident that you just you know described. You know, it obviously comes out of racism and sexism, and it's a way to dismiss our experiences and to dismiss uh, you know the the racism and sexism that this country was built on. I mean, that's what you know. It's just it's pl- as plain as that. And you know, we're told that we have to listen to at least even before the insurrection. Uh, you know, we needed to listen to the anger of the white working class and they had been ignored and they had been, you know, and, you know, there's maybe uh, some some stuff to that. But, you know, our experiences of, as I said, our experiences of racism and sexism in this country is anger that, you know, has been dismissed historically. And so it's a very privileged position of who could be angry in this country. You told a story about African-American women who blazed a trail. And I'm just going to say this, you yourself are blazing a trail uh, because you've now set forward this project and there are going to be other people, other Americans of all stripes. Everybody needs to see this movie because it's a valuable part of American history, frankly. But what uh, I have to say, I feel really gratified that young Black girls are going to see this movie, learn more about the beauty in them, and they're going to know it was made by you. And so I think that you've opened up a whole other 
potential for a whole lot of other girls. So thank you for making this movie. And frankly, I just feel better for having seen it. I feel richer for having seen this movie. So thank you. Uh, American Masters, How It Feels to Be Free. It is on the American Masters website. Everyone must see this. Yoruba, before you go, tell us what is one thing that you want people to take away from this film? So I want people to understand that our stories are American stories and that our uh, history and experience as Black women in this country has always been for pushing democracy in this country. Um, we're start now starting to you know, acknowledge that this, even though the, the rhetoric is around democracy, this was not a democratic country when it began. And black women have been at the forefront of pushing for more, more democracy and also at the forefront of cultural innovation. That's what I'd want people to take away from this. Well, you are continuing the tradition. So thank you for this movie. Looking forward to the next. And thank you so much for being here, Yoruba. Uh, stay safe, be well. And everyone will go see this movie. You must see this movie. You'll, you'll feel so much better after you do. Thanks for being here, Yoruba. Thank you, Tanya. <laughs>